<laughs> Every, everybody craves significance and everybody wants their 80 years on, on earth to be the most important 80 years in earth's four and a half billion year history. You know, right. the sky is falling or the end is coming or whatever. Cause it's like, it's like all of this history was just this big stupid pyramid just for the significance of my life. Mm -hmm. And one of the things you learn going around the world is that is not true. <laughs> and Dystopia tonight. Gentlemen. Hello. Good. Uh, what is it? Uh, Giant John and and no, <laughs> Little John and Giant Tom. How about that? Little there John. You and go. Giant Tom. Yes. <laughs> We're working on a Robin Hood remake. As we speak. <laughs> good, good to be joining you both. Good to have you here, man. I'm so excited. I wore my NASA t which I'm. Thank you for complimenting, by the way, because I never never know how hard to go. You know what I mean? But like, I had to wear it. If I'd had a dystopia t-shirt, I would have had it on, but I, I didn't oh. have one on top. We will send you one. We have yep. dystopia t-shirts. We will send you one. He's like, please don't. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he's like, I want to keep some modicum of respect for myself. Um, but that dude, I'm I'm so excited to have you on, man. I mean, I'm I'm such a huge, huge space nerd. A bunch of my friends are. I, I love that kind of stuff. Were you like that growing up the whole way through? Did you have another passion that you were interested in and then you fell into this? What was the I, I thought it was the coolest thing going on, you know, yeah. uh, to have people uh, climbing into rocket ships, going to a place that isn't like an airport or a seaport, but going to a spaceport yeah. and getting yeah. into a rocket ship and leaving the Earth and orbiting the planet. And some people even going as far as the moon to me. I just thought, man, of all the things that I could possibly be when I grow up, that would be the coolest one. And so why don't I try and do that? So I, I don't know. I was focused. I'm not sure I was a space nerd. I like Star Trek. I read science fiction, but, right. but, uh, but I just, I really wanted to do whatever it took to try and fly in space. And I flew three different rocket ships and I've done some spacewalks. So yeah, it's amazing what can That's happen. incredible. Wow. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, I was really hoping you were going to say, I always wanted to be an accountant. But <laughs> <laughs> Life takes some funny turns. Doesn't it, Tom? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what was that? I mean, when you were, uh, you know, when you were a kid, your teachers, your parents, stuff like that, was there anybody that you confided in? You were like, I'm going to go to space. And they were like, sure you are. Yeah, I, I kept it pretty quiet because it was like announcing I was going to be, you know, uh, Superman or something. It was like, especially because like, I guess you're seeing Colin Mockery later today. Yeah, like him, I'm Canadian, you know, and so Canada, we didn't have astronauts. We didn't have a NASA. We didn't have rocket ships. We had nothing. But I thought, you know, uh, it's all pretty new. You know, uh, yeah. the United States didn't have those things not very long ago. And yeah. so things are going to change. So what the heck? All, all, all I really got to do is start working on myself. But no, I didn't make a big deal of it. Uh, I met my wife when we were in high school. We, we were in a high school play together. And um, so I let her know uh, pretty early on. And she was like, yeah, you know, nice pickup line. Sure. Of course, you're going to be an astronaut. <laughs> but, um, but uh, I, I, you know, I, to me, it, it boasting about things that you might do in the future is kind of a fool's game. It's better just to try and have that as your, your kind of your goal to help you decide what to do and, and yes. then see how life turns out. But, but along the way, I, I, 
you know, became an engineer, but then I was a fighter pilot in combat in the Cold War, intercepting Soviet bombers. And then, then I was wow. a test pilot, uh, even I'm Canadian, wow. Royal Canadian Air Force, but I was a test pilot in the U.S. Air Force and the U.S. Navy testing uh, a lot of different uh, airplanes, not too far from where you are there in New Jersey and New York. Uh, oh. In fact, on on Long Island um, and and down in in Maryland, and so I did all those things on the way to mm -hmm. uh, to doing what I was wow. dreaming about. Right, you're like every child's like fantasy superhero role as you progressed to it. Amazing. Yeah, it's it's kind of crazy uh, the things that can happen, and I, I always just like, hey, what should I do next? And someday I'd like to walk on the moon, and if I'm going to walk on the moon, then okay, I, uh, I you know I need to study some stuff and learn some things and and get a degree and and got to be a pilot. You fly in space, so I need to learn how to fly. So I got my pilot's license before I had my driver's license. You know, wow. and I just wow. the the beauty of it was it was it kind of gave me a recipe. For my own life if this is what i want to do then you know how do i put together the ingredients right now yeah. and 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 so it worked out uh and you got to be lucky of course you know mm -hmm. 50 years ago never would have happened or there are lots of countries in the world never would have happened but my timing was lucky and my health was good enough and yeah. uh, and i spent half a, i've been around the world 2650 times it's just wow. it, 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 it amazes me and yet it's what's happened yeah, and I don't, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but I'm very interested in, in the the overview effect. Um, when you first experienced it, I know you talked about it a little bit too, but just to give everybody like kind of a perspective of what that is. Um, yeah, well, there was a guy in the 60s, 70s, Frank something, who wrote a book called The Overview Effect. Mm -hmm. And he'd spoken to a bunch of astronauts and he'd noticed that uh, a lot of them are worldview kind of shifts. Right. And the first one I launched out of Florida on my first launch on space shuttle Atlantis. And I was on the flight deck, you know, part of the, the flight crew operating the shuttle and um, launched up and it's an amazing ride takes about eight and a half minutes. Mm -hmm. um, then the engine shut off and you're weightless. And by the time you can unstrap out of your seat and, you know, make sure everything's healthy and uh, you got to get to the window with a camera because we had to take pictures of that big external tank, make sure it had no damage. Right. Um, so that gave you a reason to have to get to the window as soon as you get to space, which is what you want to do anyway. And mm -hmm. I remember unstrapping out of my seat, retrieving this long lens camera and floating to the window just as we were coming up on Ireland. Wow. And I'm trying to do my job, you know, and, and take pictures of the big external tank in super detail like I've been trained. Um, but we're going five miles a second, you know, right. 17 and a half wow. thousand miles an hour. And I'm looking past the tank and there's like London and there's Dublin and there's Belfast and there's Paris and there's the Hague. And there's, you know, you can see all the way up to, to Stockholm and all the way down past the Alps down to Rome in one glance. And so mm -hmm. it's just, wow. it's just, and that's just the first three or four minutes. And wow. then I, I spent almost six months total over three flights and it per, perpetually forever changes your understanding of the world. It puts everything into proportion. It allows you to, to understand how old the world is and, and, and our little tiny part of it. And, mm -hmm. and, and I think that is maybe as much the overview effect as anything. You come back with a dramatically improved sense of the reality of the world and, and how you, how you, I mean, if, if you, the two of you had just had that experience, 
kind of a personal reaction and choice. How are you going to work that into your life? What right. am I going to do with this amazing experience? Um, but uh, but you'd have to be just kind of a stone to not have it affect you somehow. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel because I'm this may be naive on my end, too, but I, you know, after reading about that years ago and, and kind of thinking about it every time anybody goes into space and does that kind of shit. Do you ever feel like um, you wish you could just take some people like pol anybody, politicians or anybody that's got this really narrow point of view, drag them up to space and be like, look, do you think it would do you think it would fundamentally change every like you said, you have to be a stone. And as we know, some of them are. But, you know, do you really do you think that it would have this crazy impact on everybody and maybe how we see everything? Well, I remember meeting a guy once and uh, he said to me, you know, I was so glad to finally finish high school so I didn't have to learn anything anymore. Wow. And I thought, Jesus. wow, you, you uh, that's an amazing life view. Right. But, <laughs> but, but also, I, I don't think there'd be, if you've closed your mind off that completely, yeah. that you now know everything you ever need to know, and you've seen everything you ever need to see, that I think it would be wasted on a person like that. But for most people, it isn't. One of the coolest things is, uh, you know, you steal every second you can at the window, even when you're there for months and months. And there's right. on the space station, there's this huge bulging window mm -hmm. that, that sticks out. So you can look forwards and look back and look straight down. And um, you, I mean, right up until a couple hours before I came home from my third flight, I was still in that that big cupola window, just trying to soak up the world because it's so beautiful. And I resolved that I would just love to take every single person in the world that I possibly could and get them. Let's just go around the world once. It just right. takes 92 minutes. In the next hour and a half, wow. I'm going to teach you how to look at our world and actually, yeah. you know, see it. Not just not just be entertained by it, but actually see our world and let it soak into you. And, and the more people that that could see that, the better. And and a lot of the stuff I've done, you know, during my flights and since then has has been an effort to try and share that deeply personal experience as best as I possibly can. Yeah. Do you do you have any opinions and feelings? I'm sure you do on on basically the way the space travel is kind of heading. I mean, you know, you've got the billionaires that are taking their. Well, first of all, they're calling themselves astronauts, which is hilarious in and of itself. But I guess, you know, are you much are you more like, look, whatever gets people involved, you know, that's a benefit. Or do you feel like this is something that professionals should probably handle more than. Guys yeah, well, uh, astronauts, I mean, if you go for a ride on, you know, on Delta Airlines and you sit in the back and you eat your peanuts or I guess it's not even peanuts now, you eat your uh, right. pretzels yeah. and uh, are you an aviator? I guess by definition, <laughs> you're an aviator. Yeah, right? yeah. It's maybe not what it meant 100 years ago when it was Amelia Earhart or some sort of aviator like that, but right. you're yeah. an aviator. Okay. And so if, if someone buys a ride and spends 10 minutes and gets them out of a space, I guess legally sort of they can call themselves it out they're not a professional astronaut right. not a pilot but anyway it's just a word um i i think though a lot of people have missed the point of, of what's happened here with the recent tourist flights uh what it's really showing is just how incredibly good the technology has gotten how simple and safe the rocket ships are and right. how yeah. how drastically the cost has fallen mm -hmm. you know it used to be an, an only an entire nation could afford to fly in space. And now uh, an individual can buy a ticket, you know, and yeah. there are 
thousands of people that have bought tickets. It's still expensive, but you know, aviation was really expensive back in the early 20s. It was only for very wealthy people. So we're, yeah. you know, we're in the process of sorting it out. We need better regulation. We've got to, yeah, we need a model that works. But I, I think it's a natural progression and, and it's okay. And I work with SpaceX and I work with Virgin Galactic and try and help them safely doing what they're doing. But the vast majority of space flight, it isn't you know, flying tourists, it's all the other things we use space for and what the space, the, yeah. I think 70 countries have space agencies, you know, to try and explore and use and understand and go further out. So we get all distracted by a few billionaires, but <laughs> the rest of it to me is the real heart of the business. Right. Yeah. And I've heard you talk about spacewalks and moonwalks and stuff like that before and actually working towards build, like, you know, eventually possibly living on the moon or maybe building something out there where people can stay. Is that uh, something that you'll, you think we're going to see maybe in our lifetimes, or do you think it's way, way down the road or the crews that are going to walk on the moon are already chosen and training right wow. now. Okay. Uh, in fact, today, uh, later today, the big new NASA moon rocket, uh, the space launch system, Artemis, it's rolling out to the launch pad later today here on wow. St. Patrick's Day. Yeah. Uh, oh it's going to launch. I don't know, it'll be a little while to get it all checked out and launched it. So, uh, so yeah, it's real. That's what's happening. And, you know, the very first people took an enormous risk back between 69 and the 72. Mm -hmm. and 12 human beings made it safely to the surface and walked on the surface. But that was just sort of like the, the very first person to the South Pole or something. Just if we take our best technology and take a huge risk and are willing to have some of us die, can we just barely do this thing? Right. And that's what we were doing in the 60s and 70s. Now, you know, by you know, Bill Shatner, William Shatner, Captain Kirk, actor at 90 years old, can mm -hmm. go for a ride and get up to space. So obviously yeah. the technology is a lot safer. And that yeah. means with the safety and the cheapness. That means it's much more practical now to actually start going to the moon more regularly and do it for other reasons than just exploration. And, you know, the, the moon, it's bigger than Africa. It's a right. huge geology. It has a hundred billion gallons of water in, mm -hmm. in, in the in the shadowed craters. There, and so we're we're starting to settle the moon. That's going to happen over the next generation. So pretty interesting time in history. Yeah. Um, and and I'm I'm you know, pretty pumped to be part of all that. Right. Yeah. Are you, are you, do you think you'll be able to go and, and walk on the moon yourself? Are you eager to get back there and do it? Or are you just happy to help the next generation get up <laughs> when, there? Like when I was that little, little kid watching Star Trek, I, that's what I wanted to do was go yeah. walk on the moon. So given the chance, I would love to go do it, but I, I, you know, I, I've already been in space three times and there's a lot of younger astronauts. So given the chance, sure. But I, I don't think I will. Mm. Um, I'm, who knows? I may get a chance to fly in space again, but uh, nice. one of my classmates, Mike Lopez Alegria, he's taking uh, three paying passengers up to the International Space Station at the end of the month. He's flying the spaceship, uh, but taking wow. care of these three people. So, you know, we're at that stage where three successful people who've made some money can go to the space station for a week, you know, and pay for it out of their own pocket. So that's uh, an ex astronaut doing that. Right. But um, to the moon, I I'd love to. I, yeah. I just what you only live once, you know. Why right. not? Why not give yourself all of the skills so your life can be a grand adventure? And mm -hmm. and, uh, and if if that's what we're going to be doing, I'd love the chance. But I work with the companies that are making it happen. I work with a company called Astrolab. We were out in Death Valley a few weeks ago. 
testing the big rover that they've built, solar powered rover. Wow. Uh, that sort of becomes the main mobility vehicle on the surface of the moon. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I, I feel like I'm vicariously there anyway. Yeah. But if I can physically get there, you know, enough virtual. I want some actual, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd love to get there in person, sure. Right. Yeah, you go through some intense training, I know, you know, do that kind of stuff. But I mean, and you guys have to obviously have like amazing amounts of patience when you do that stuff. But you've built, you've helped build two, two space stations. Is there ever a point where maybe when you're out there, you know what I mean? Like when you're actually outside the space station and you're trying to fix something where it's maybe taking a little longer than it should. How do you control being like, yeah, guys, you know, just take your time. I'm only outside the fucking ship, you know, <laughs> like, you know, whatever, whatever you guys need to do, you know, does it ever, does it ever take over where you're like, I'm out here a little too long? Uh, no, it's the coolest thing ever to be out on a spacewalk because yeah. um, the, the ship the space station or the space shuttle, they're right there in your face. You know, you're holding on to that with one hand. You're wearing a jet pack so that if you tumble off out of control, you can activate this jet pack and fly back and grab back on again. But if you look to one side, the world is, is gigantic and separate from you. It's like this big uh, textured kaleidoscope of color, silent, but huge. Right. But the reality is you aren't part of Earth anymore psychologically it's it's just a planet you know right. it's like looking at the moon yeah. it's a planet in the distance that's not you anymore and you're out there surrounded by the, the eternal three-dimensionality of the universe that's your new reality and it's just overwhelmingly gorgeous and thought-provoking and you're super busy building things and and uh you know doing what you're outside for but uh at one point, and, and maybe you're going to ask me already, but when you're in the shadow of the earth, obviously you get sunlight, dark, you know, 46 minutes of light and then 46 minutes of dark because right. um, you go around and around. Uh, when we were in the darkness, uh, while I was outside, we went through the, the, the aurora, through the northern lights. Wow. And they were pouring around the ship and, you know, rippling between my legs and the colors of the aurora, the green and the little bit of red. And, and there are some other colors in it, too, that, that your eyes are good enough to detect as the other gases are fluorescing. I, I couldn't believe it, you know, like surfing on the aurora that this wow. little canadian kid got to surf on the aurora and wow. and all of that is happening while you're out on a spacewalk it's just oh my God. the richest and most informative and most fun experience of my whole life wow that's so amazing i i felt like me and my wife got to experience seeing the aurora and it was life-altering i could not even imagine being in it like actually being in it that's so incredible yeah, it's like you're just getting to know the planet with an intimacy that you could never do any other way, you know, because, you know, you're, you're there either south of Australia or, or, you know, across Canada looking at the Northern Lights. Yeah. And 45 minutes later, you're on the other side of the world, you know, <laughs> wow. you cross the U.S. from from uh, L.A. to to Long Island in nine minutes. Mm, you, know, wow. you see all of the geology and geography and history and all the people and everything in nine minutes, you know, yeah. and it's hard to even to see that fast. And so to be outside on a spacewalk with nothing between you and the universe, but the little bit of plastic of your visor, that's, yeah. it's so personal and so uh, magnificent. I, I, I'm so lucky to, uh, it's maybe the rarest club that exists. Yeah. Um, human beings yeah. that have done a spacewalk.
as so when when you guys get back on the ship, I mean, I'm sure there isn't a ton of downtime, but when there is downtime, what is the conversation like between it? Is it just constant? Like, can you believe where we are? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that has to be most of it. Like, guys, a, a little bit. Yeah. I mean, number one, you're weightless the whole time. So if the right. three of us were having a conversation inside the ship, you know, one of us would be upside down and, you you know, you're just floating around. It's so that's really cool and, and conversation provoking. Cause if someone says, Hey, just throw me the, you know, the salt and you know, you just float it and goes tumbling through the air and you grab right. it. And we actually can't have salt up there cause the sprinkles wouldn't fall. So we actually have salt water that we squirt on our food. So you can oh, wow. And, and for pepper, we put the pepper in like, um, olive oil so you can just squirt a little bit of peppery oil on your food mm. but anyway so the weightlessness is just a constant uh freedom and joy and then we're we're super busy on the space station we're running uh, i don't know what the number is right now like 300 experiments simultaneously so there's this enormous yeah. rhythm of work that is going on but you're also just a just a bunch of you know idiots up there just a bunch of people you know yeah and <laughs> Um, and you're just, you know, you're just the same little kid that you've always been. And so is everybody else from all around the world, mm. you know, 15 yeah. different countries that have built the space station together. So all these different ideas and different religions and backgrounds and, and, uh, and so the conversations all over the place, but most of the time you're just working on your own. You really only get together maybe for one meal every other day. And otherwise uh, you're, you're just the ultimate lab technician and lab rat who every second that they can is trying to steal a few minutes at the window just to notice what an incredible experience this is. It must be such a unifying experience too, because it's so like the earth of being on the earth is so divisive still like, right. So you're separated by nations and politics and everything that could be. And then when you get there, it's everybody's just like you said, outside of that. Yeah. I, I talked to the space station on the weekend. Actually, one of the guys called me, Tom Marshburn and, uh, he said, you know, it's horrible what's going on in Syria right now and what's going on in Ukraine right now. I mean, it's just wicked, unforgivable, yeah. bestial, greedy, small-minded uh, human misbehavior. I mean, it's awful. But the, the weird thing of being on a spaceship is you go around the whole planet in an hour and a half. So you yeah. see these little spots where people are behaving so terribly, but it's put into perspective of where everybody else isn't where everybody else is just trying to find a little laughter and grace and joy and have a, you know, make it nice where they are and be good for their kids and stuff like, like most people are, you know, so right. that helps. And then you're doing something that's rises above the, the, the muck, you know, you're, you're, you're exploring the universe. We're, we're trying to understand what dark matter and dark energy are. We're understanding our planet. So there's a huge unifying nature to the, to the quality of the work that you're doing and the purpose of it all. And so talking to Tom up on the space station on the weekend, um, it's weird when your cell phone rings and, and it says, you know, space. Because <laughs> 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 it's a space station call. Um, but, uh, you know, they're 100% they're unified and working hard and, and having dinner. And Tom's about to take over as the commander here in a couple of weeks. There's, hmm. there's a, a Russian rocket with three cosmonauts coming up uh, later this week and then those uh, tourists are coming up at the end of the month and then there's another crew rotation and they just couldn't be busier or more productive and it's just an immensely disappointing distraction to see uh, some of the stupid stuff that's happening down on the surface right 
Yeah. When you guys are up there and you can see like, because I know you, I've seen some incredible pictures that you guys have taken of like storms that you've seen or what's coming ahead of time. And it feels almost like, you know, you guys are like getting the information way before everybody else when it comes to stuff like that. Is it, is it weird to do that kind of, you know, stuff to see like things coming ahead of time and not really being able to do or say anything where you're like, I, I can't help it, but I can see this crazy storm coming. Uh, actually, one of the guys, uh, they were they were coming up across the northern Pacific and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you, you cross a little bit uh, west of Hawaii and then you arc up in, into the bay there south of Alaska as you cross into British Columbia. And he saw a volcano starting to erupt, a wow. big one. And he's looking at it and he knows that it's sticking stuff high enough up into the air that it's going to disrupt air traffic. You know, the big airliners that mm -hmm. are cutting across there. So he actually, as soon as they had a good satellite link, he got on the phone and he, he talked to the people at the FAA and wow. said, hey, uh, I'm on the space station. Just want to let you know there's a volcano starting to erupt. And, uh, and you know, you need to work it into your flight planning and put out an, a NOTAM, a notice to airmen to let people know. So, yeah, we often see stuff early on, um, we can track things, you know, we can see if you're looking for a ship or, or, or something around the world or, or what's going on with a particular iceberg or, you know, what, uh, you know, all of the natural disasters that go on. Um, the crew that was up during nine 11, imagine the type of stuff they were seeing and, mm -hmm. and taking pictures of. And then of course, with what's going on in Ukraine now. So right. you see the whole world and then, you have to decide what does this mean to me, mm -hmm. and then what is my, you know, my my public service. What is my responsibility? As with huge privilege comes huge responsibility, and yeah. and you know just how privileged you are to be one of the seven out of the eight billion of us that's up there right now. And so, yeah, you take it seriously, and and if you can be helpful, uh, you know, you do your very best to to make sure the right people know what you're seeing. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember when you first found out that you were going to be working on the space station and where you were and like how you, you know, uh, like who's the first person you call when you find out that that's what's going on? <laughs> uh, well, first, you got to get selected as an astronaut. And that's this right. ridiculous long filter with a with a lot or funnel with a lot of filters in it. I think when I applied, there were five thousand three hundred people applied for four slots. Wow. And, and recent NASA recruitment, I forget, it was like eighteen thousand people applied for. I don't know, eight or 10 slots or something. So, so that's a big funnel and filter. So it all comes down to this one day where they say, Hey, we're going to call all the finalists. You know, you've gone from 5,000 to 500 to hundred to 50 to 20. And you know, now whatever, mm -hmm. we're going to call the finalists uh, tomorrow starting at one o'clock. So uh, we were sitting in our kitchen. I, I was a test pilot with the Navy in Maryland. We had this big old farmhouse and my neighbor, who always wanted to be an astronaut, he'd come over just so he could be in the kitchen, you know, to find mm -hmm. out if it was good or bad. And um, and when the phone rang, it, it was almost right at one o'clock. So I thought, hey, that's a good sign. They're going to call the people that they want first. So they call and, you know, this president of this, this I'm Canadian, Canadian Space Agency says, hey, do you still want to be an astronaut? I said, yes, I always have been. Um, and my wife's doing cartwheels <laughs> around the kitchen and, you know, just super excited because the right. water, watershed moment in life. Right. Yeah. And then I'm like, well, I should call my mom and dad. So I called my, my mom answered, uh, my dad's not big on talking on the phone. And, uh, <laughs> and, and I said to my mom, mom, you can't tell anybody. Okay. Don't tell <laughs> anybody, uh, whatever you do. Don't. And she's like, yep. Yeah, okay. I won't tell anybody. 
Um, and so I tell her the news. And then I'll, I'm talking to my wife, Helena. She says, you, you should call your grandma and grandpa as well. So mm. I call my grandpa and he says, oh, yeah, your mom just called. She told me. but uh, she said oh i didn't think you meant family anyway um that was just the beginning you know and then you've got two years of astronaut sort of um apprenticeship when you're not Mm -hmm. even you'll like this you're not even an astronaut yet you're an astronaut candidate which that gets abbreviated down to ASCAN. She's two years as an ass can, you know, lovely. I used to be the, one of the best test pilots in the world, and now I'm an ass can. Um, and you're responsible for like, you know, the the, the Christmas skit and stuff like that in the office. Um, but uh, you finish your astronaut candidacy and hopefully, and some, and we have that because some people fail out or they find out, hey, this isn't actually what I thought it was going to be and I don't want to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's healthy. But, and then coming out of that, then, Hopefully you'll get assigned to be part of a crew. And what happens is the chief of the astronaut office, whether it's Peggy Whitson or uh, who's the chief right now? Uh, I don't know if it's Chris Cassidy, but anyway, um, you get this note or or email or a phone call saying, hey, uh, chief of the office wants to see you. And you're thinking, okay, either I'm getting a medal or I'm in great trouble, or maybe I'm getting a space flight. And uh, so you go down. to the chief's office and, uh, and they, they tell you, Hey, uh, we've decided to assign you to whatever STS 74. And it's surreal, right? Wow. Because everything up until then has been pretend simulators, mm-hmm. practice, everything in the future. And suddenly the future gets a lot closer and, yeah. and you can stop paying attention to a lot of other stuff. And now for the next few years, just focus on the things that are important to get this mission, right? And that happened to me three times where uh, where I, I and I was an astronaut for 21 years. So like once every seven years, but uh, where then you're going to dig right in and work and, and get ready for that flight. It's it's a magical moment in life. And you know that if I can make this thing work, uh, nothing's ever going to look or feel or be the same. Yeah. Yeah. Is the training like prep? Like, I mean, you're obviously like super prepared to be up there, but is there anything that can really prepare you for the real thing? You know, like I'm sure they get as close as possible, but like, how does it hit you when you're finally like, oh yeah, this is, this is not like what I imagined. Uh, we work really hard to have a good simulation. We don't want to, you know, a, a shocked astronaut. That's not a good way to be, you, <laughs> you know, you want. And um, so we, the amount of training would stagger you. You'd like, no. like, for example, what if someone gets sick? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I went and uh, qualified at San Jacinto College as an emergency medical technician. And mm-hmm. then I worked at Herman Hospital downtown in all of the different wards. Uh, and I went down in the basement where they have the, the you know, where the, the bodies are. They have, they have a bunch of cadavers down there. And I did all basic work on the cadavers. And then I assisted Red Duke, legendary surgeon. He's the one who declared Kennedy dead. You know, right. I assisted wow. him in the operating room. And then I was the guy in emergency as everybody came in off the street. And I'm the one who, you know, does the quick diagnosis and does all the initial first aid kind of intubate or, or you know, whatever, catheterize or whatever you need to do. Um, yeah. Just in case... One of us got sick up on the space station. Wow. We take the training that seriously. So when I got to space, I was worried and nervous that I wouldn't know what I was doing, but I super practiced and, and understood everything about everything that I could. And when I got the first thing done right, 
you know, uh, got my helmet away, unstrapped out of my seat, took pictures of the tank. And then I got the second thing done. And then the third thing done, I'm like, hey, I, I sort of know what I'm doing. Yeah. And what it felt <laughs> like after a while, you know, when you're body surfing and you, you miss a few waves, but then you get it just right, you paddle right, and you're starting to catch that wave, you realize, mm -hmm. hey, I'm on the front of this thing. That's <laughs> that's how it felt. I felt like I had I had done enough work in advance that uh, that I was catching that wave. And my entire three space flight, actually my whole astronaut career, it really felt like because I'd done all the work in advance, I could really be in the moment of what was happening and do what I needed to do. And that to me, that there's no better feeling in the world. Wow. Wow. It, is that like that first moment that you looked out that window? Did like, what was it? Like, what was that first impression? You know what I wanted to do, uh, Tom, was I wanted to grab somebody and because we were looking at, you know, London. I used to I used to have a little apartment in London, England uh, when I was a teenager. And um, I wanted to grab somebody and say, hey, look, London, London. I used to live in London. It's London. I used to live there because like that mattered. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's how I felt was I needed to somehow have a link, uh, a definable, uh, small way to handle the enormity of what I was looking at because because wow. there, there was way way more out there than I could see that I could rationalize and and you know the first time around all you can really see is what you already know you know what you what you expect to see and then the second time around I'm going hey there's London and look you look there's you can see uh where where Windsor Castle is must be right there over by by the airport and then the next time around you're going well wait a minute if that's London oh there's the Thames all the way to the airport <laughs> next time you come around you're going wait a minute there's the where the Isle of Wight broke off <laughs> and so that must be that must be where Stonehenge is right there wow, and wow. you know by the thousandth time around you're actually truly seeing the world and what i felt like was the world was was saying hey you thought your last orbit was cool wait till what i'm going to show you this time and now you know where to look to really see the world yeah. look back in the sun glint and and look at the terminator where the edge of of night is that that strip between dark and light on the world and and um and and even on my 2600th orbit i was just learning so much about the planet and just in awe of the of the age and the toughness and the self-healing nature of our planet. It's just, uh, I wish the three of us were, you know, the time we're talking, we could have gone around the world once, you know, Oh, and man, it, amazing. It, it would just, it would just, uh, gobsmack you the whole time. It's amazing. Yeah. If you're offering, I'd go. <laughs> yeah. uh, I don't know if you're we're, offering any free rides, but I'll we're going to have to pitch this. We'll have to pitch this to the show. <laughs> yeah. I'm yeah. afraid you're going to have to shave, guys, because you got to wear an mask. Oh, all right. Yeah. all right. That's fine by me. Shave the whole thing. It's yeah. good. I'm good to go. Um, <laughs> it's the only time I would do it. What, I know I've seen some videos where you guys are kind of like goofing around, you know, sometimes up there and, and just for maybe it's for people, you know, back home to kind of see that there's a playful atmosphere. How tempting is it, though? when there is like an Aurora outside the spacecraft and one of you is like, you know what? We could really screw with people and make that look like an alien. Like, you know what I mean? Like a shit, like do you ever get that kind of impetus to be like, let's, let's send them a weird picture. Yeah. Well, uh, there, there's a huge public trust, right. And, and, mm -hmm. and we're not, we're not just, uh, you know, goofballs up there for our own purposes. Sure. You know, we're, someone's yeah. is trusting us. Yeah. I, I used to be, a military fighter pilot. The, mm -hmm. the, you know, I was a fully armed F-18 mm -hmm. 
uh, going out to wow. intercept a fully armed Soviet bomber right on the edge of North America as they're wow. practicing cruise missile launches in our countries. And wow. so there, there's a huge level of, of responsibility and public trust that comes with being in that role. And, you know, astronauts, if you watch Armageddon or something, all astronauts are <laughs> one-dimensional idiots, but, right. um, <laughs> but, but, you know, that's not how it is. And so you understand that that you're, it's not just, you know, silliness and you, you got to have fun. And we, you know, we play around all the time and we kid with mission control and such, <laughs> but when it comes right down to it, it is a deadly dangerous and serious business that we're involved in. And one stupid little mistake will kill everybody. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, we, we had a, a liquid ammonia leak on the outside of the station where we had to do an emergency spacewalk on basically no notice to go out and not, so we didn't have to abandon the whole spaceship. And, you know, the reality of it is, wow. is it's, you know, that's what you're there for. And once in a while, you know, when you're supposed to be asleep, maybe, you know, a few of you will stay up late and, and, you know, goof around or make a music video or, or, you know, do yes. something fun. But, uh, but no, it's, it's. It's a pretty serious working place to be. And, and that, yeah. you know, that's the way it ought to be. I feel like there's so many questions even on the fighter pilot side too, right? Because how I was gonna ask, like, and crazy yeah. of a job is that? Right. Uh, it, it's a great job. Uh, you get to fly one of the highest performance machines humanity has ever built. You would love the freedom that comes with uh, being in a single seat top end fighter airplane. You know, you can just go straight up. Mm. Uh, five miles, seven miles, anytime you want. And you know, imagine if right now you could just pull back on, on, on the stick and go straight up seven miles. Right. You know, just, and, or, or flying around low level and typically at 420 knots, you know, so six miles a minute and, or seven miles a minute, sorry. And, and, you know, where you can imagine the world going by at seven miles a minute. Yeah. Uh, so, so, and you can push up to 549 miles a minute and, and where everything's just ripping past you and you're only 200 feet above the ground, the, the concentration that goes with that, you're doing it for a really specific purpose. It's fun, but, but you know, your job is, is to defend your country and, yeah. and the things that you think are important in the world. So, so it's got, it's, it's a tremendous challenge. It's, it's hugely free in all dimensions. It's got a, a really necessary purpose in society and you take it hugely seriously. So, so yeah, it, it's a, a fascinating job. And, and then moving from that to being a test pilot where, where you test all sorts of new stuff for a guy like me, that was, that was just the perfect stepping stones. And I would be happy if I was still a, a test pilot. Great yeah. job. The only thing that I really wanted to do more than be a high performance test pilot was to go fly in space and I'm lucky enough to do all those things. Right. Wow. What do you, how do you feel about the, the, you know, the kind of pathway that we're leading toward like people flying? Cause there's all these new, new machines, you know what I mean? There's, there's flying cars that are kind of being coming out or whatever. And I think more pedestrians, you know, are leaning towards doing that kind of stuff. Even though, have you seen the drones that they have now, which is basically like a giant circular thing with a pilot in the middle of it. Yeah. Like, there, there's all sorts of designs of, you know, because if you think about it, uh, I was looking at a video uh, from, uh, I think it was 1911, and wow. over half the vehicles were still uh, pulled by horses. Right. And, you know, the oldest person in the world is 119. So they were born in 1903. So mm -hmm. that that's their lifetime. You know, one yeah. human lifetime, we have gone from essentially all horses in 1903 to a mm -hmm. large degree right through to now where uh, you know we have electric cars are becoming more and more dominant and but 
uh, car travel is so great, but it's two dimensional. You know, you can't you can't stack it unless you build an overpass, and that's not much. So trying to make it three dimensional is the right answer if we want mm -hmm. to decrease congestion. So you, you can stack cars vertically, but it's hard mm -hmm. to make a vehicle reliable enough, especially if it's pile unpiloted, right? Know, some sort of little Uber drone or something. Sure. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. but if it hits a bird or if it's a day where the snow is falling or if uh, if one of the engines quits, it's really hard to not just fall out of the sky and die. So so how do you it's, it's a good idea. But and there'll be some transitional, you know, technologies that will get us partway there. Mm -hmm. um, Elon's digging tunnels under the ground because that's, you know, the other way to solve the congestion problem. Sure. I, I, but yeah. we also don't have enough power density right now, you know, with just batteries for most of the applications, you can't get far enough. In some applications you can, but it it's sort of like golf carts. They're okay for certain applications, but obviously the, yeah. you know, they don't apply everywhere. I think we'll get there. What we, well, we need, we need big improvements in battery density, the amount of power you can squeeze into a battery, that type of stuff. But I'm all for it. Yeah. You know, you, you kind of it's you just need to look into the future. Inevitably, where will we get to? Right. And then is this the moment in history where our technology is just getting good enough that maybe we can start doing that thing? Right. And for a lot of technologies, uh, as you say, uh, that's where we are right, right now. And so, so it's pretty cool. Uh, yeah. You know, and, and I think we should be pushing those technologies as, as hard as we can. It's awesome because even those, have you seen the videos of the guys with the jetpack basically thing going from yeah. like a smaller ship to like one of the bigger ships? That blows me away that we're even at that point in time. But I don't know. Do you do you have any opinions on it, like being recreational as opposed? Because, you know, there's going to be people that are going to be like, we're going to use that at spring break, you know, like because <laughs> obviously well, somebody, you know, that's that's fine. I mean. Uh, we are a study in contrasts as human beings. I'm always amazed when I'm riding in a car that has passed all of the safety standards, driving down the highway. And so I've got, I'm surrounded by, I don't know, 17 airbags and mm -hmm. this crumple zone and I'm wearing a seatbelt and a shoulder belt and who goes by me, but a guy on a chopper with no helmet, right. you know, it's like, and, and so my <laughs> car has super restrictive rules as to how much noise it can make. And the motorcycle, you know, <laughs> the more noise is better. And yet, yeah. so, somehow we've rationalized that both those things are fine, you know. <laughs> and 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 I think that's healthy. You don't want everybody, you know, doesn't want to be just cloistered away in right. the safest set of circumstances, you know. And we're all yeah. different. Um, so I think uh, when we start going vertical, there's some mm -hmm. people are going to say, "No way! I want to. I'm going to stick in my." Um, what what did uh, Dave Barry called it? Oh, he said, "I'm going to be driving my Honda Actuary," <laughs> um, and uh, uh, and then some people are are not, and some people are going to want to get in, you know, uh, just a thing that lifts them up and flies them where they want to go, yeah. recognizing that it might kill them, but at the same time, hey, we're all going to die, yeah, yeah, eventually, yeah. and so I want to live in the meanwhile, and and then it's just up to all of our regulators to decide you know, where, where they can draw the line, uh, and, and, and still please as, as many people as possible. So yeah, the, the, it's going to be the risk takers that go for those new technologies first, but eventually they'll become mainstream enough, you know, like aviation 110 years ago was crazy. People died all the time. Mm -hmm. And now you get on an airliner and it's safer than your drive to the airport was, yeah. you know, and, and everyone yeah. just takes it for granted. And that's one human lifetime. We've right. come that far. And, you know, yeah. so, so you need that, that, that transitional process.
especially when you're stuck in that loop in the airport when you're trying to leave and you can't get out and you're like, you know what? I'm either going to run into somebody or I'm, t- or I'm moving here. I don't know which one it's going to be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, it's uh, the other thing I was going to ask you is like when you were flying planes and stuff like that, and then all that stuff started coming out in the news. Cause you know, we get bored. So we start thinking about aliens and stuff, but when those um, reports were released of the, you know, uh guys in the in the planes and stuff like that seeing this stuff were you able to kind of go like oh i know what they're talking about and i think i know what they saw you know as opposed to what everybody jumped to the conclusion of yeah well i mean i i'm i'm evidence-based and i'm a practical experienced uh uh aviator and human being and so i i would i would like to see actual evidence not inferred evidence or right. or secondary or tertiary evidence you know and um a, a little, some sort of reflection in a heads-up display caught by the recorder of of some pilot's jet. I mean, I have flown uh, over a hundred different types of airplanes and spent thousands and thousands and thousands of hours in jets. Mm-hmm. And I've worked with a huge population of people who have done the same thing through their entire lives: Army, Air Force, Marine Corps, Canadian Air Force, other uh, Air National Guard. Uh, both my brothers are airline pilots. My nephew's an airline pilot. My dad's an airline pilot. Wow. Um, I've been on board three different spaceships and two space stations and spent half a year in orbit. And and I've taken 45,000 pictures of the world. And, um, and I have flown with and, and know basically all the cosmonauts and astronauts that exist. I was president of our professional society. So I know the, the you know, from Valentina Tereshkova on, I know everybody and nobody has ever seen anything that <laughs> falls into the category of alien. None of us, nobody. Right. So, so then when people say, hey, I saw this video on the internet of, uh, of a pilot's heads up display and I don't know what that thing is. So therefore it's got to be intelligent life from another <laughs> solar system. I'm like, well, you know, that, that seems like a bit of a jump. You know, yeah. and and yeah. how about some real evidence? And mm-hmm. and there's all kinds of stuff that cause displays to behave in a way that seems non-intuitive. Right. I, I'm pretty confident there's life somewhere else in the universe. Be kind mm-hmm. of arrogant to think we're it when there's right. essentially an unlimited number of planets. You know, our good telescope, yeah. like James Webb telescope, is about to show us oh. planets around other stars. I We've already wait. detected you know, 5,000, we, we now know that every star has at least one planet, essentially. Mm-hmm. We didn't know that 15 years ago. Right. So now we can, you know, there's like such a big number of planets out there that it's essentially infinite. So life developed here. We know that for sure. Mm-hmm. So there, there's probably yeah. at least blue green algae somewhere else. So yeah. um, we haven't found any evidence yet, but just statistically it makes sense. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I think it's fun talking about yeah. you know, UFOs and it's exciting. Yeah. And, and I like science fiction and eventually maybe we'll find evidence. It's why we're drilling into Mars, why mm-hmm. perseverance and that little helicopter is uh, going to fly again. Why we're you know drilling into a Delta on Mars to see if maybe the fossil of anything would answer mm-hmm, that yeah. question. If there's fossils on Mars, then the universe is full of life and that, that's good to know. Yeah. But, uh, but I'm, yeah. You know, anybody can believe whatever they want. Right. But belief is easy. You don't actually even need evidence to believe right. something. I, I'm, I'm more interested in any sort of proof. And I have a pretty wide net. I've never seen any proof. Yeah. I, I feel the same way. I would love to see something like that. I'm always interested. Well, like when people have alien stories, I'm like, man, I wish I could have experienced whatever you thought you experienced. But I can't, you know, 
Um, but there's there's like, have, did you see the movie Don't Look Up? Have you seen that? I, yet? I did not. No. Oh, you got to see this. It's so it's a great great movie. But it it you know it's about um basically a comet headed toward Earth that's like a planet killer. But I read something recently that said um you know that's not likely to happen because we kind of know every big object. That's oh, we in don't. The, we don't. But see, that's what all. I thought too. Yeah, we don't know, right? Because I was like, yeah. "What about?" I'm going to pronounce it wrong, by the way. But what about Umanuma or whatever the the name? Yeah. You know, I was like, "We didn't see that coming." No, well, that 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 came from outside our solar system. That was, you know, attracted across the space between stars, interstellar space. You right. Know? So uh, that's a rare event. Um, but if you think about it, our solar system was formed from the dust and crap that was in interstellar space. So there's nothing magic about all that. It's just, it, mm -hmm. we, we, it's hard to imagine what 5 billion years is. It's such an enormous number. But yeah. um, the earth gets hit by 40 tons of rock every single day. Mm -hmm. 40 tons wow. a day. Holy it's our shit. planet. Most of it is just little bits of stuff, dust. Right. Um, sometimes it's a big enough rock that it, it'll, um, it'll burn up visibly and you'll see a shooting star. But mm -hmm. 40 tons a day. And then there are about 200 craters that were big enough and, and recent enough that you can see them still as scars in the surface of the world. And, and of course, the whole world was formed by rocks banging into each other, you know, originally. Yes. So, so it happens and it happens on a regular basis. And if you look at, you know, Tunguska back a little 100 years ago, that big one in Siberia um, or, or, you know, uh, on any given day. I mean, there was a person hit by a meteorite within the last year, came through the right. roof and, you know, yeah. landed on the pillow next to them in bed. Right. <laughs> it happens. Um, and they're really hard to see. There was one come into the atmosphere last week and we detected it before it hit the earth, mm -hmm. uh, which has only happened like five times. Because wow. if you're looking out at the blackness of space at a lump of coal that doesn't reflect light, how do you even know it's there? You know? right. And yeah, we track yeah. thousands of them, but there are millions of them that we don't track. So, right. and some of those statistically are big enough to at least do significant damage, if not do, you know, global kind of damage. So it's, you know, if, if you're a, an insurance salesman, it's one of the things to, to buy, to <laughs> let people have a policy on, you know, it, it there's, there's bigger risks, you know, sure. uh, pandemics yeah. or uh car crashes or even you know when is yosemite gonna erupt next time and bury the entire united states in many feet of ash that's gonna happen too right called there or there but probably not you know this century but you know you don't know for sure it's just one of the risks of being alive and but nasa and other organizations are doing their best to do a complete sky survey and protect the planet as best as possible. Because we know that if we could detect it early enough, we now, for the first time ever in Earth's history, could possibly go out and deflect it. Not like in Armageddon, but that sort of idea. And uh, <laughs> you only have, if you get to it early enough, you only have to change its path a tiny bit so it would miss the Earth. So right. we actually have the capability to protect our planet if we needed to. So it'd be kind of stupid not to at least figure out how. So, yeah. you know, in amongst yeah. everything else, one of the things we're working on. Is space junk that some of you guys are genuinely, I mean, I know I've, I've read again articles about, you know, it being a concern, but there's also like, there's, so there's space junk, which is obviously that everybody knows is out there, but now there's companies launching satellites. Is that something you guys have to constantly anticipate and you worry about it? 
Um, well, if you look at things that are the size of your baby fingernail or smaller, mm -hmm. there are at least a million of those uh, made by people orbiting the world. Wow. And a little thing the size of your baby fingernail going uh, five miles a second, you know, your energy goes up with your speed squared, you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah. if you double the speed, you get four times the energy. If you triple the speed, you get nine times the energy. Well, in this case, it's going five miles a second. So even though it's a little tiny piece of nothing, it's got a lot of a lot of bullet-like impact. Trajectory. So, yeah. so yeah, we, we're concerned about it. But space is bigger than most people think, hmm. you know? And that sounds trite, but <laughs> it's hard to imagine the enormity uh, of even all the orbits around the world. And, you know, I, I lived on two space stations and um, uh, it has armor on the outside to take care of the little bits of grains of stuff that are hitting it. Um, but eventually a big enough piece will punch a hole in it. So you have to practice like on a ship, you know, eventually all yeah. ships sink, eventually all cars crash. You know, you need to have a plan for when, when things go wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, and as you say, we're launching a lot more things into orbit because the cost came way down. So we need a better regulatory model. Cars had been around for a long time before we invented stoplights, you know, because suddenly we were crashing into each other in intersections. Someone said, you know, we should maybe have a plan here and uh, came up with stoplights. And we need, and, and lots of people are working on it. You know, the whole space traffic plan, there's a huge meeting just happened in Europe for them to try and be the the standard bearer of how to how to do that. And we need, and the way you regulate it is before you can launch, you have to have an approved life cycle plan for whatever you're launching for. Okay. What are you going to do if it malfunctions? Uh, how long is it going to be up there? How's it going to avoid hitting anything else? And what are you going to do at the end of its life? Right. You know, and, and that's where we are now. But we got a big legacy of junk up there. And I'm working with the X Prize uh, on a big uh, sort of uh competition thing for new technologies. And then there's a bunch of companies working there to try and figure out. And the new, the the what used to be Air Force Space Command, now Space Force, they are putting a lot of money into it because they recognize it's a threat to assets up there. It's not an unsolvable problem. It's it's sort of like, you know, the plastics in the ocean. Stupid thing for us to have done. Sure. How do we clean it up? You know, who's going to take responsibility? It's sort of in that category. It, it's not unsolvable. We just have to decide that's what we want to pay attention to. Right. Well, that's actually, I mean, I, I, I wondered that because when people, you know, sometimes you read these articles or whatever, and they're like, we're, do, it's over, you know, we're launching satellites into space and, you know, there's not going to be enough room. And I'm just kind of like, I don't know. I don't know how anybody actually feels about that. <laughs> Every, everybody craves significance and everybody wants their 80 years on, on Earth to be the most important 80 years in Earth's four and a half billion year history. You know, right. the sky is falling or the end is coming or whatever, because it's like it's like all of this history was just this big, stupid pyramid just for the significance of my life. Mm -hmm. And one of the things you learn going around the world is that is not true. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and so I, I think um, a lot of people's reaction to things is just they want to feel significant. They want their time on earth to really count. And so they look for big issues that that seem global so they can be part of that to really feel like like they mean something. And I can understand that. That's a normal human reaction. It's been going right. on for 10,000 years. So that's fine. Yeah. Um, the real question is what are the actual problems? And then what 
are we doing individually and collectively to try and solve them? Whether it's pandemics or feeding 10 billion people or cleaning up our garbage or, or you know, cleaning up in the atmosphere or, or cleaning up space debris, you know, none of those are unsolvable problems, but we just have to prioritize them you know, amongst everything else. Sure. Uh, if if there was a movie that you you could you could point to and say this is the best representation of space travel, I've heard Interstellar is one of those movies where they get kind of those kind of things right. Is there anything you would recommend? Uh, Apollo thirteen is the best um, mm -hmm. because it's based on a real thing, you know. Sure. And, and Ron Howard made that movie with some good actors, and uh, he Ron worked super hard to keep it as factual as he could. He used the actual transmissions between Jim Lovell and the crew in Mission Control. Right as the dialogue for Tom Hanks and, and the other guys, you know? Wow. So, so he, he, it's not, you know, obviously he had to simplify a whole thing into a two hour show, which is fine, but mm -hmm. it's very good. And then the, the spinoff series that Tom did uh, from the earth to the moon, it, it came out good. Um, All right. Uh, Interstellar is, that's one of a Nobel prize winning physicist named Kip Thorne, who it was his idea. And, and then he hired a company in the UK called um, double negative to take his math and what would it look like? You know, wow. what the, the theory of a black hole, you guys are the yeah. best at visualization. What would this theory actually look like? And, and, mm -hmm. and then how can we build a plot that, it, you know, that, that puts all that into it. And, and so, yeah, it, I, I, it's pretty interesting. It's, it's really way out there because right. it's beyond a lot of our, and you had to assume some things that don't exist yet, but yeah. uh, it, it's, it's quite interesting and thought provoking. Um, but you know, sometimes you just want entertainment too, in which case I think galaxy quest is the best uh, space movie ever made. I love galaxy. <laughs> Me too. It's the, it, my friends and I talk about that movie con constantly. It's just so I, I much fun. It. Yeah. yeah great. And just the star Trek parody. I mean, they could not have nailed that more perfectly. Yeah, it's the best star Trek movie ever made. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. I love it. Absolutely. Yeah. If, if somebody came to you like tomorrow and was like, hey, listen, we jumped ahead technology wise. We want you to fly to Mars. Would you do it or would you be like, no dice? Well, the details matter. Uh, fundamentally, yes. Yeah, I'd love to. Sure. Yeah. But what in and for what purpose? Th those are the two big questions that a test pilot asks or mm -hmm. that, a, you know, an astronaut asks. I think a lot of people just don't know what astronauts do. <laughs> you know, we think we're like, we're like airline passengers. We're sitting in some waiting room and, you know, uh, going into public <laughs> relation events and then, Hey, your rocket's going in 10 minutes, go get in. Um, you know, we, we help invent space flight. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I helped design the space shuttle cockpit. Uh, I, you know, every flight we had to invent it. I, I mm -hmm. for my second space flight, I went to the, the full scale model makers so they could build the simulations that we could put underwater so that then I could train for three years so that it would be realistic enough so that when we got to orbit, it, we would have been trained well enough to deal with all of the problems. You know, astronauts in, help invent space flight. So, so if you say, hey, you want to go to Mars? I'm going, yeah, but what in? And 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 right. what level of maturity is it at? And And what are the risks and how are we designing and inventing and testing things to make them work. And then what's the purpose of it? You know, why are we going? What, mm -hmm. what what's, I'm, I don't, I'm not going to spend a huge amount of taxpayer money, you know, just for bragging rights or something. What, what <laughs> is the purpose of this? And, right. and does it make yeah. sense to me, you know, uh, intrinsically? And um, right now, 
uh, it doesn't make sense with, with our level of technology, it doesn't make sense to go to Mars. We're going to kill everybody every time, or maybe we'd get lucky and maybe get some people there, but, but for what end, you know, until our engines get better and maybe Elon's on the right track with the vehicles that he's building. But to me, his are far more suited to going to the moon and back than they are going, but Elon's a brilliant, you know, a very remarkable human being, lots right. of flaws, but some tremendous strengths. Amazing. Right. Um, yeah. But uh, I, I'm not sure, you know, but you need a long-term vision. You got to inspire people. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't just want to be a package delivery company to low earth orbit. It's necessary, but it's boring. You know, right. yeah. um, you want to inspire people to, to huge projects. And, and so getting to Mars is really inspirational and complex, and we should get all our eggs out of one basket. Just look at the Earth's history. But um, but uh, I would love to, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I would more than that, I would love to work for the next 10 years to be part of the team that invented all this stuff and solved all these problems in a way no one had ever come up with before so that we could push everything and just barely do something super hard for the very first time. That mm-hmm. that's interests me, not yeah. to, hey, Go to Mars and back. Go to Mars. Yeah. You know, because that that's that's not going to happen. It's a good way of putting it because people do kind of talk. I think because of Elon, people kind of talk about it very flip where they're like, yeah, you know, we're all going to get on a ship one day and just go and who's signing up. And, you know, yeah. and you're like, you know, you're going to die. Right. Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> like it's yeah. a one way trip. But um, I want to talk to you about your books that you have. You have three bestsellers. Um, you have the Apollo Murders, which is on the screen um, and it's being made into a series. You were telling me earlier before. Would you like to talk a little bit about that? Small correction, four bestsellers. Four, uh, oh my God, sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, uh, and um, yeah, the books have done great in many languages and all sorts of awards and things. But yeah, the ones beside me here, The Apollo Murders, uh, it's my first uh, fiction, thriller fiction, and it's done fabulously well. Big article in New York Times and a bestseller in multiple countries. It's already in, I don't know, 15 languages, I think, all around the world. And the cool news is... Uh, uh, as, you, as you mentioned, uh, we, we're just signing right now with a production house to make it into a, an eight-part series on, I don't know, Apple or something like that. So that that's still, you know, there's a lot of a lot of bridges to cross from awesome. from signing the original contract to still getting everything done. And it's it's a low hit rate, but uh, it's a lot further along than than I've ever been. And so that's fun and exciting that me sitting in this room here, actually at this desk. Um, for a year, just writing this book, coming up with all these ideas, this amazing sequence of cool thriller action, alternative history fiction, that already millions of people are are sharing it and sending me notes every day. And and maybe fairly soon, you know, people be able to to really live it and go see it. And, And hopefully it will be when someone says to some future astronaut, so what's the best series ever? They could point to the Apollo murders. Hopefully yeah. <laughs> it's being the most realistic and interesting series. But uh, yeah, it, and, and I'm writing the, the next book in the series now. You know, uh, I've, I've done a bunch of stuff in my life, but what really matters, I think, uh, same question for you two guys is, what do you do with everything you've learned so far? You know, what do you yeah. do with all yeah. the experience that you've had? Do you, some of it you just keep to yourself. Some you tell your family. Some you, you try and apply to your work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, what do you do with who you are and what you know? Yeah. And I've always asked yeah. myself that question. And I work with a lot of space companies and I teach at university and I run a big technology incubator called Creative Destruction Lab. And um, But I thought it would be fun to try and 
tell the story of space flight uh, as a thriller fiction so you could really let people in on how everybody actually is not just some sort of sanitized nasa version of what happens but actually right. yeah. you know everyone you know farts and throws up and swears <laughs> and does stupid stuff and has their own agenda and you know just people and right. um, yeah. and so that's why i wrote the apollo murders and i'm just i'm just delighted that the book's been a huge success but also uh, that now maybe uh, we can bring it uh, to the screen as well what 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 a fun adventure yeah how involved Absolutely. are you in the process of bringing to the screen do you want do you have like uh you know full creative control over it and and is it verbatim book to screen or are you getting a adjusting yeah, well, I, I did not want to have my name on a series that sucked you know or that i was embarrassed <laughs> yeah. about you know, worse i don't want to cringe in the theater like when yeah. i went and watched gravity I, it was at the canadian premiere and you know and the director and and some of the actors and stuff were there and it just it made me cringe because because yeah. i mean the visuals were good but it there was so much of it that was just wrong. And, and I thought Sandra Bullock, I mean, she's a, a really a huge respect for her and good actress, but um, the part they wrote for her belittled women terribly. I mean, yeah. George Clooney had to keep coming in as I'm competent. You're an idiot. Let me save you again. Right. And the most experienced yeah. astronaut in American history is Peggy Whitson, a woman. Yeah. You know, she's done 10 yeah. spacewalks and commanded the space station twice and NASA's chief astronaut. And yet, here they've written this thing. So if you're a little girl and you're watching Gravity, you're going, oh, women are incompetent and, and maybe they can find a way to survive. But the men are the only ones who really know what's going on. Really? That's right. the movie you wanted to make? Yeah. Anyway, yeah. so uh, when we make the Apollo murders into a, uh, a series, I just I want I don't want it to make me cringe in the audience. Mm -hmm. I, I want to, you know, have it as close to reality as we possibly can and still make it a thrilling and effective story. And so I, you know, I'm in an executive producer role where I I'm involved in the writing. I'm not, I'm not a screenwriter. I'm not, you know, the writer, but, but uh, definitely in the contracting, I want to be, and, and they want me because they yeah. need someone who can bring, answer the realism yeah. questions. Um, and, and, you know, since I've done a lot of those things and, and I wrote the book, I'm in a good position to do that. So, so, um, so yeah, I, I'll, I'll be involved. And I really like the team of folks are putting together. Uh, it, it's with uh, Altitude uh, and they're a UK, US firm um, and they've done some really good stuff. And so, yeah, it's, uh, there's never any guarantees in life, but, but I, I'm really excited about this project and where we are with it. That's cool. I'm glad to hear that you're involved in it because I've, I, you know, there's so many authors I've loved over the years too, who've had a project kind of taken away, you know, they, they get to TV and then they find out that they're hardly involved and it's like, yeah, you have to learn to let it go. And you're like, yeah, no, yeah. it was so good. <laughs> um, that's so I, I want to thank you so much for coming on, by the way, we're getting close to wrapping, but we just want to get to some questions that, uh, some people had had from the audience. If you don't, if I can toss those at you, I'm ready. Okay. One of them is, I think we already kind of, uh, uh, touched on it a little bit. One is from, uh, um, Josh and it is, um, so if, if you were to meet an alien, if you were to meet some kind of space thing when you were out there, is there a protocol? Is there something like, hey, if you're up there and you do come in contact, what's the first step? Yeah, no, there is no protocol. It's not like, you know, when you're an astronaut, <laughs> what you do is you take what is the most likely thing to kill me mm -hmm. right now. And that's the thing. That's protocol item number one. Okay. And then what's the next most likely thing? And, and then what are we trying to accomplish? Which experiments are we trying to run? And your whole life is the thousands of prioritized things that are there for significance 
or probability of happening. And that's what you focus your whole life on. And so uh, aliens knocking on the outside of the hatch, that's an extremely low probability event. <laughs> so, so we don't spend any time worrying about it. You know, right. there's a whole bunch of stuff in that category. You know, what do you do if there's a dinosaur on board? Well, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. I guess we'd figure out something, but it's probably not going to happen. So let's not waste any brain cells on it. So, so no, there, Josh, I'm sorry, but it's, it's a, it is an, an incredible enough thing to happen that we, we don't worry about it. I love the imagery of a dinosaur on board. Now I'm not going to be able to get that out of my head. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I almost feel like if that were, if like if another, an alien life one would hit and it almost looked exactly the same, both of you would just be like, I don't know, this is it. <laughs> like this is it. You want to come well, in? I, I mean, obviously we're, we're smart, educated, experienced people and we know what's going on and you know, yeah. we, we try and do what made sense, but, uh, but no, uh, it's, it's, it's too low a probability to worry about having to have a set of procedures or something. Yeah. Do you subscribe yeah. to the theory, basically, because I've heard Neil deGrasse Tyson talk about it a lot, where we're probably ridiculously insignificant. If there's somebody that can travel through space, he's not going to pay attention to us. But I feel like it's sometimes I'm like ego where I'm just like, we we watch some pretty cool stuff on Netflix. I don't know. <laughs> well, one of the things uh, I thought about, John, going around the world all those times was uh, how old our planet is. It's four and a half billion years old. And you can hmm. see because you're going so fast, you can see where South America and Africa used to fit together, you know. Wow. So, yeah. You can get a real sense of time, which is hard to get, you know, on on Long Island or in New Jersey. You don't you don't get a sense of the incredible age of the world. And also, while I was on the spaceship uh, for my third flight, we went halfway around the world. So that means half a year. Right. Which means you go halfway around the sun. And so that meant winter and summer swapped ends mm -hmm. on the world. So it was like watching the world take one breath out of four and a half billion breaths. Right. And, and so I. I started to get an intuitive sense of just how old the world was, which is hard to grasp, mm -hmm. but also that life has been on this planet for 4 billion of those four and a half billion years right. without right. interruption. We have right. fossil records, you know, in, in Northern Canada and Northern Australia. So that was immensely reassuring mm. that life earth is so tough and life, we could not wipe out life on earth. If we tried, we, we don't have the capability. Life is so tenacious and tough and, and, and everywhere miles underground and in the atmosphere. So, so that's really reassuring. Um, yeah. Quality of life for humans that that's hard to maintain, but life is here. Right. To stay. But when you look at that time, the most primitive life, barely, you know, blue, green algae guck, um, that is the dominant life form on Earth for almost the whole history. Complicated mm. life is really recent and sentient, a thinking, intelligent, questioning comp complicated life. That's super recent. And, and so when I look out at the stars, uh, I think, well, maybe that's normal in that life is fairly common. There's blue-green guck on, on a lot of planets out there if the temperatures and pressures are okay. Um, but did the right sequence of events happen that caused that stuff to mutate into, uh, you know, stuff with a head at the front and a tail at the back and, and some sort of eyeball sensors or something, right. you know, that, that may, an, an intelligent life, as far as we can tell, we are the first actually really intelligent life after four and a half billion years. So my guess is life is common and intelligent life is incredibly rare. Wow. And if that's the truth, 
then I think if we found intelligent life anywhere else, even if it were more advanced or less advanced than us, then we wouldn't just ignore it. You know, right. Uh, if we find a fossil on Mars over the next couple of years, we're not going to ignore it. We're going to study the hell out of it. We're going to try and learn every single thing we can from it. Mm -hmm. And so I think if an, a species that had been intelligent for a million years longer than us came along, they would see us as whatever tadpoles, but they wouldn't <laughs> ignore us. You know, right. they still recognize that we're on the path to what they became. So I don't know. There, there's no way to know for sure. Maybe Neil's right. I don't know. But uh, but I, I think it is worth thinking about, especially because we're drilling for life on other planets mm -hmm. and the James Webb telescope that is just going to get its camera, its mirrors focused here in the next couple months. Right. Is going to yeah. be seeing uh, pretty detailed information about planets around other stars. I can't wait for that. You know, we're we're getting close to the point where we will have evidence as to right. whether we're alone or not. And then, you know, what do we do with that information? Uh, yeah. And how does it fill in our understanding of our place in time and our place in the universe? Nice. Do you think another, it would be? Oh. I was going to say, do you think it would be smart of the people that did attain that information to let that information out to the masses right away, or like almost figure out how to? you know, how to dissipate it to the masses. Because I feel like, like you said earlier, the masses can be a little bit different where they're like, well, I learned as much as I need to learn in high school. I'm done. Does that guy need to know? Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think uh, word's going to get out. And uh, <laughs> and I think that's that's okay. Um, uh, I, I, you know, NASA doesn't keep any secrets. Uh, and NASA's, you know, people think it does but uh, it doesn't they, they just mm -hmm. tell everybody what they're up to you know right since walking <laughs> on the moon they were brought if 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 buzz swore it, it got broadcast on you know international tv it's just the way it, it was and and i think that's for an organization like nasa that makes sense you know if there was some huge secret military tactical advantage to something we discovered then it would probably get treated differently by no matter what country was doing it but i think if the james webb telescope sees an atmosphere around another planet that shows that it's an industrialized planet, like a, a distinctive signature, then uh, they're going to tell everybody. Right. And, 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 I, and we'll just have to decide based on whatever our belief system is or our economic model or, or our own view of the universe, we're just going to have to figure out how does that change our previously slightly incorrect assumptions. Nice. Uh, we have another uh, question from a fan. Um, what inspired you to start writing books in the first place? Was Were you inspired by a particular author or something you always wanted to do? Um, yeah, I've always been inspired by authors. And I like English or language in school more than anything. My mm. first book, it, that's my newest one there. My first book is this one, Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, as an astronaut, you, you go out and speak a lot. And uh, I realized after 20 years of going out and talking people it's nice to tell people you know how do you go to the bathroom in space and what's the food taste like but what really matters is what's worthwhile out of all this for me as a person are there any right. ideas out there that i might be able to incorporate into my own life you know mm -hmm. and i found after all those years that was the part of my talk that was the most worth worthwhile for people and so i thought i should try and write those down you know and and so one day when my wife and i was out walking the dogs like we do every day and and I said, you know, I should call this book An Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth, because that's the only thing that matters to us. And so um, and so that's the first book. And it's it I mean, it's done great. It's all over the world. And um, uh, 
Sam Houston University, just north of Houston, they used it as their first year reader. Compuls- they built the entire curriculum of the university wow. for first years around the ideas of that book. So part of my motivation, like a lot of stuff I do in my life, the vast majority of my motivation is how do I share the rare experiences that I've been lucky enough to have? It's mm-hmm. why I did a master class. It's why I wrote I wrote and recorded an album of music while I was on the space station. I, yes. you know, I, I teach at university. I, uh, it's, it's, it, it kind of, uh, informs most of my decision-making be, because I just feel it, it would be a waste if I squandered this incredibly rare human experience and didn't tell anybody about it. Didn't share yeah. it, just kept it to myself. It's like, well, okay, you were a good technician, but you kind of missed the point of why we put you there. It wasn't just to throw the right switches in the right sequence. It was actually to bring back the human experience. So maybe some other people could have better informed decision-making in their own lives. So, so that, that's why I, I write books um, and, and because it's fun and interesting. And at this stage of life now to write fiction, it's a really fun and interesting challenge yeah. as well. And I learned so much when I'm writing fiction. I, I read a lady the other day and she said, you sit and you write uh, and then you, you, you fact check and then you agonize over all your word choices and then you go back and you re-edit and then you go to the next sentence. <laughs> that's what writing is like. You know? <laughs> and, and it, for me, it's a very painstaking process because I want to mm. get it right. I want to make it as good as I possibly can. Um, and, it, and it's fun. It serves a purpose. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Um, I want to uh, ask you the last three questions that we ask every guest. Oh, somebody said, I loved an astronaut's guide to life on earth. I see that. Thanks, Mike. Um, oh, here we go. We got another question. More. Oh, things are popping up. Had you had experience on the earth that it compares to the feeling of seeing our planet from space? I've imagined that the moment a thousand times in my head, and I would love to hear about it. Looking out the window. Oh, we talked about that a little bit earlier. Yeah, yeah. Here, but I think, um, yes. Uh, any time where you are overcome with awe, where you are awestruck by something that is magnificently bigger and more important and, and uh, more complex than yourself. And so I feel it what, like when I walk into an enormous ancient cathedral, you know, St. Peter's or St. Paul's, um, I, I am just, I have to stop what I'm doing just to try and you know, my tiny little bit of capabilities, try and soak up where I am. Or when I've walked into an ancient wood forest, like a redwood forest, and and you're just like, wow, you know, just think of the history and the nature and the and the reality of where I am and my little busy ant life racing around life. And and this is here at the same yeah. time. And and so anytime. And, and it doesn't have to be, you know, you can, you can be awestruck by other things, but I find that kind of comes the closest. When you feel like you should be talking in hushed tones for whatever reason, you know, when you yeah. feel like you want everyone, hey, just be quiet for a minute. I'm trying to soak this up. Right. That, that's, to me, that is the perpetual feeling of being on a spaceship. Nice. That's great. How about having children? I know you have children. How about having children? Where did that rank with like? Yeah, I, I, I was lucky enough just with circumstance to be in the delivery room when my wife was giving birth to each of our three children. And uh, yeah, that is uh, as big a life event, I think, as you can have. You're, you and your spouse are creating another human life. 
which yeah. is a big responsibility, but also an amazing biological thing to happen. It seems like magic. And, and there's a wickedness to birth, but you know, it's just so physically painful and demanding of the woman. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, there's such a magic to it. Uh, I mean, if David Copperfield were designing, you know, a, a magic trick, it's like where there was one swollen being, now there are two, and and, um, and 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 one, and they're both individual and sentient, and and you know that that's there. There's such uh, an awe-inspiring magic of that. So, yeah, I, uh, I I uh, I count those on that same scale. Absolutely, nice. Um, I've got to ask you the last three questions that we ask every guest on the show. Okay. So uh, first one is, if you can go back in time and talk to your younger self, what piece of advice would you give yourself today that would help you? Uh, for my third space flight, my dad was in his 80s and couldn't travel all the way to Kazakhstan. So he he like, he talked to me beforehand and he said, you have worked your whole life to be ready for this. Um, trust yourself. Hmm. Trust yourself. And I think if I was talking to myself at, at 17, I would say, Hey, you're on the right path. Uh, you're, it's going to be an enormous amount of work. Things are going to go wrong, but trust yourself. I think nice. that's what I'd say. Beautiful. Uh, second yeah. question is what had to end in your life, good or bad that led you to where you are today? What had to end? Yeah. Um, you have to uh, give up on more things than you'll get to do, right? Uh, some of the things that when your heart of hearts, like I'm not getting any Olympic gold medals. I'm, I'm never flying on the Snowbirds aerobatic team. I'm never, uh, you know, and there's a lot of places I've been to, a, I don't know, almost a hundred countries and I've been around the world, lots of places in the world. I'm never going to see, you know, you have to recognize that life is finite. And your ability to experience things is finite. Even if you go crazy and, and burn the candle at both ends and in the middle, you're still only going to get a tiny taste of all of the possible experiences that might happen in life. So accept that. Accept yeah. the finite nature of your own life and, and accept that, that that means that some of your dreams, the majority of your dreams, are going to be unfulfilled. So treasure the ones that are happening even more. Right. And, you know, I, so I, I think it's not the end of dreams. It's just understanding the necessarily finite nature of all your dreams. Wow. That's yeah. a great answer, man. Thank you. Um, and the third question is super silly and it ties into the show. So uh, if this is a genuine dystopia and there were aliens, zombies, whatever your dystopia is, volcanoes, stuff on fire, everybody's everybody's last day on Earth. What's uh, the way you would like to go out? What's your epic death look like? I wouldn't accept that it's guaranteed the last day on earth. Uh, <laughs> if, if I'm still healthy and I'm yeah. still thinking, uh, then why should it be the last day on earth? You All know, right. um, most things are just problems that need to be solved. And so, you know, that that's what I've done for a living my whole life. So mm -hmm. I wouldn't just uh, you know, that's what really pissed me off about Neville Shute's book on the beach. All these people in Australia that had five months to prepare for the nuclear cloud to finally come there. And they right. did nothing. They just sat around and went, oh, well, we're going to die five months from now. And yeah, so uh, let's just pretend we're not. I mean, right. like, hey, do you have any <laughs> idea what you could accomplish in five months? And right. this is the future of our whole species. So I was like yelling at this book going, what are you doing? Don't be <laughs> so, um, so 
Uh, no, but eventually, I'll, I'll, you know, I need to accept the death. I've had lots of my friends die uh, because of the dangerous professions I've had. Um, and I, I need, I've already accepted the reality of my own death. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean I now give up on life, you know, right. it, and, and if and, and faced all sorts of threats, you know, and uh, the real question is, uh, do you have the skills to deal with the problems in order to do the right thing next or not? Mm. And so yeah. if things are going bad, then uh, work hard to try and make them go good again or to minimize the impact on my, me and my family. Um, try and find a set of circumstances to continue life in, in as good a capability as possible. And if the whole thing comes apart, then try and, you know, the, the people that have the longest and greatest chance of life, my, my granddaughter and my children, you know, try and do everything you can to, to give them the greatest chance of moving forwards uh, or whatever time is remaining, you know, right. pay attention to those things. Yeah. That's, that's where all my priorities would be. Beautiful, man. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been an honor to talk to you. Absolutely. Really nice to talk to both of you gentlemen. And I hope you do get a chance to fly in space and surf on the Aurora. Oh, Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much. It really was a pleasure. And everybody go out there and check out the Apollo murders. You want to see the fourth bestselling book. I apologize. That was my fault. I didn't know this one ranked (laughs) onto the fourth. So it's, it's not the fourth, but it is, it is the fourth one I've written. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I think it's doing as well or better than some of them. But anyway, it doesn't matter. Thank you for mentioning it. <laughs> My pleasure. Have a great one. Thanks again. Take care, man. Thanks, guys. Be well. You too. Bye. Dystopia tonight.